Hello, my name is Michelle O'Brien, and I will be having a conversation with B. Hawk Snipes for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is March 28th, 2019, and this, this is being recorded at the New York Public Library's Midtown Manhattan offices. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Yeah. How are you, Michelle? I'm doing very well. Awesome. <laughs> Let's start off and just have you introduce yourself. Well, I am B. Hawk Snipes, and I am uh, 30 years of age and fabulous, my ad. Um, and I'm just out here doing the work and living my life the best way I, am, I know fit. And you told me on the way up here that you are a native New Yorker. Yes, and I am. I am a native New Yorker. I am from the Bronx, New York. I'm born and raised. I'm technically born in New York City in this in Upper Manhattan, and then raised in the Bronx. So I'm like fifty percent Bronx, fifty percent city. So um, yeah, it's been it's been quite an amazing experience, kind of seeing how New York has changed. Where in the Bronx did you grow up? I grew up on uh, Kingsbridge Road, so that's a little bit right after Fordham Road for everyone who doesn't know where Kingsbridge is. Um, yeah, I'm up there, but, you know, we make it work. We're doing a bunch of Stonewall 50 events at the Bronx Library Center, not far yes. from there. And a couple of them are really exciting. So yeah. Check that out. I'm, super, I'm super excited about the different projects that are coming into the Bronx, um, you know, growing up. We all we have were Yankee Stadium and the zoo, and you know, and some parks to go to. So I always had to migrate to the city in order to have a little bit more fun. So I'm excited to see um, the different opportunities and artistic um, directions that are coming into the Bronx. Tell me about what your neighborhood was like when you were growing up. Well, growing up, I I grew up in on Kingsbridge um, Road area, and um, for some time. I had to, I went back and forth between the Marble Hill projects where my grandmother had lived and and home because my my dad was an alcoholic and super abusive. So we had to go back and forth and try to get away from that as much as we could. And um, But it wasn't the easiest thing um, growing up, kind of representing as um, a black and more feminine um cis male um so that was that was really really tough and trying to find out who i was what i identified with you know all these questions that are going on in my head and um i think with growing up in a predominantly black family those questions weren't asked we didn't talk about sexuality we didn't even talk about sex at all i've never had the sex talk <laughs> with my parents um so we didn't talk about much except homework and homework. I think that was pretty much it. And then, you know, my mother put me in like different, you know, art, art dance classes and things of that nature. Just to, like, for me to get away from hanging out in the streets and getting into trouble a lot. Because um, she knew for some reason I was this crazy creative child. Um, and she knew, she was like, I have to do something with you as, uh, as far as um, being an artist goes. And it's funny, this is just a random thought that came in my head. Um, she, I went back and saw photos of me as a baby and she would dress me up in predominantly um, 
what some may know as female clothing, um, dresses and barrettes and things of that nature. And I was probably, I probably had to be like one maybe. And I find it so weird that she did that. Um, and not because it's a weird thing to do, but for the household that I grew up in, it was just like, what is happening here? And she was like, well, I wanted all girls. And, you know, I got you and I just figured, you know, why not? And I just think that sometimes, sometimes parents just know. They just know their child. And even though we've never really spoken about it, even though I, I still have a hard time speaking to my mom about my um, what I identify as and things of that nature. But I just know that we have this connection that we if we, even if we don't communicate about it, we kind of just know, you know, she kind of just figures it out in her own little creative, sarcastic way. So, um, yeah, growing up, it was it was definitely, you know, tough, especially in the Marble Hill projects as well. Um, you know, trying to be able to express myself, going to a predominantly Catholic school and knowing that I didn't I couldn't connect and I didn't relate to the Catholic religion as well. And, um, and then my sexuality, it was a lot going on. So I kind of just, I hit it with sarcasm and jokes and, um, being an artist and entertainer. And that's, I think that's how I kind of just stuck with my love for art. So I think, you know, all that was held within and I just had to express myself somehow. And I think through the art world, that's how I got it out. Can you uh, say the name of the projects where your grandmother lived? Oh, uh, Marble Hill Projects. Marble? Marble oh. Hill. Okay. Yeah, Marble Hill Projects. So. I know the projects in Brooklyn, but not in the Bronx. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah it's, right, it's right up. It's uptown. It's on like 231st, I believe. It's up there. It's like right in between that, like the end end of like Washington Heights and the Bronx. So it was quite interesting growing up in there. Um, we had a babysitter and, you know... I saw a lot of crazy things, but I think growing up in a project taught me to be humble. It taught me to be a stronger person. Um, I think when you're growing up in um, certain environments where, you know, a lot of people are just trying to survive um, and they don't, they don't have the resources that they need to do better for themselves or they don't know how to. Um, my mother, you know, she, she, you know, we weren't like super duper poor, but we definitely didn't have a lot of money. We we're kind of right in that in between of that middle class um, state. And, you know, she was like, listen, you know, I'm going to give you as much as I can um, and teach you as much as I know. But just know that you have to rise up from this. Just know that you have to want to do better for yourself and do better for not just yourself, um, but for others as well. So I've always kept that in my, in my head, in the back of my head. And, and that's what I still do today. How, uh, how did your family pay the bills? Do you know what kind of work your mom was doing when um, you were young? Well, she still does. Um, she's involved with dividends. Um, so it's a lot of stuff between stocks and money and things of that nature. She, um, at that time she worked for, um, J.P. Morgan Chase that have transferred over to some other company. I have no idea what the name is, um, but she was working for them at the time, and um, that was the only job she had. It was a very, you know, it was still a very great paying job. Um, my dad is now a retired police officer, so he was working for the NYPD. So that was also interesting uh, growing up. 
um, having a dad that was a cop. And, um, you know, he had went through some some issues with that as well, some mental issues, um, because, you know, at one point he was, I would say he was bothering a homeless person on the train, which a lot of NYPD officers do at times. Um, and the, the homeless person had stabbed him. And it was all over the news and in the newspapers. Um, luckily, my dad is still alive to this day. But he does suffer from alcoholism and a lot of um, uh, mental issues. And I don't know if it was because of that, but I know that didn't help um, necessarily. So now that, you know, now that he's retired, it's been, um, it was, it's been quite a, quite an interesting um, journey with him because we've been in and out of rehab with him about four times, I think, when I was younger. And it just... He just wasn't catching on. There'll be times where he would stop, but he would just keep going back. So I think my mother really had to work overtime. She had to get us a babysitter, which luckily was a right. It was the apartment right next door to my grandmother's in the projects. So you know we had we had a really great, um, loving environment surrounding us, and a lot of really great people um, protecting um, not just me but my sister as well. I have a younger sister. <laughs> by three years. I don't communicate with her as much as I should, but we have our own little issues. <laughs> um, as most siblings do, you know, it happens. Um, but I think um, with, you know, my mother kind of being, in a way, a single parent. Like, my dad wasn't around a lot. And if he was, it you didn't know what was going to happen next with him. You didn't know, like, in your head, you're like, well, is he drunk? Is he Has he been drinking today? You know, is he going to do something that's going to, like, upset my mother? Are they going to get at it? You know, my mother's a Gemini. She's feisty. She's from Harlem. <laughs> and she doesn't. She likes to fire back. And, you know, and it was it was really, really tough kind of growing up in um, that kind of environment. But we had, we definitely had more love than hate for sure. Um, in the, in that whole situation, but yeah, she had to. My mother had to do a lot of a lot of work in a lot of hours to kind of pay the bills. Um, but she did it, and with the help of my my grandmother, my uncle, my grandfather at the time, who was um alive at that time, they really helped us out a lot. And it's also my babysitter at that time too. She didn't she didn't charge my mother a lot, so and you know she took care of us most of the time and fed us, and it was it was great. Do you know anything about what it was like for your mom to be a black woman working in finance? I don't. <laughs> until until she until I grew up later and she told me like, you know it's hard. And I'm just like, what? What's hard? I'm like, what's wrong? What's happening? And she would just tell me, she was like, you know, just she wouldn't necessarily talk about my mother, she's, you know, she's a New Yorker, like I said, she's from Harlem, so she's a little dramatic. But she she would just be like, I work with a lot of white people and they just don't get it. They don't understand. They don't get it. And I'm like, you know, I grew up, of course, in a different generation where I grew up with, you know, all colors and things of that nature. And I'm like, Ma, you can't talk about white people like that. She's just like, no, they just don't understand me. And I'm like, I didn't get into later on in life what she was trying to say. And I'm just like, oh, okay, I understand what you're saying. So it was, I think, still to this day, she works for the company and um, it's been tough for her to be an older 
um, black woman and have um, younger people come in and take different opportunities away from her and have and have the company kind of treat her as if, you know, well, we'll just give this to her. She'll, you know, she'll do it. She won't say no to it. Um, my mother's been within that company for almost 50 years. So it's it's pretty it's pretty amazing to kind of see how strong she is as not just a woman but a black woman um, when the odds are kind of against you in a way. But um, she's powered through. She's she's a smart, a smart, beautiful person, and I think um, just just hearing certain very sarcastic stories from her um, when she would get off work was entertaining. But also now that. We can have deeper conversation as I'm an adult now. Um, it's been it's been a journey, and I've learned a lot from her and how to migrate in this world as as um as a black femme person. And you know how can I be successful without necessarily bringing anyone down? And how can I be honest without being this, you know, quote unquote, angry black person that a lot of, um, a lot of sometimes in spaces people would see me as, um, so it's it's been it's been quite a journey to kind of just listen to her and hear her talk and you know do my research on other um, powerful black women that have kind of fight um, those those standards and so it's been I love her I just look at my mother like wow. You, you're, and she's still doing it. That's the crazy part. Like she's still at it, and she's like, you know, I love, I love what I do. Um, I, you know, she's waiting for me to really get those mega millions in there, and <laughs> so she can retire and get a home somewhere. So we're working on it. We're working on it. But until then, she's gonna <laughs> have to stick to it, and um, we'll figure it out eventually. What um, what were you like as a teenager? Ooh, what was I like as a teenager? Um, feisty. Um, <laughs> I was. I went to LaGuardia High School for performing arts, for dance and art. So once I left Catholic school that I went to from kindergarten to eighth grade, and then going into a public, an art public school in the city, I was like ecstatic with joy i was like because i applied to all all boy catholic schools in the bronx and i did not want to go but my mother was like she didn't want me in a public school environment she was like you're gonna get in trouble she was she was i think she was trying to protect me from you know getting in trouble or getting picked on because she knew there was something up she knew i was different from the rest so I think she was just like, no, go to all boy Catholic school in the Bronx. You'll be fine. And I'm like, no, that's not where I want to be. I want to be able to express myself. I don't want to wear uniforms all the time. I don't want to feel ostracized because I'm not Catholic. <laughs> um, and at that time, I didn't know what I was. Uh, all I knew was Catholic and, you know, Baptist. And I have never been baptized. I don't know how that goes. And it was the whole religious situation I had to find for myself. Um, but... After not after then being accepted to LaGuardia for dance, and I kind of went behind her back to try out. 
because um, I hadn't heard friends of mine in eighth grade that were trying out. And it was like, oh, we're trying out for this like fame school where you can like dance and all this other stuff. And I tried out. I told her I went. She was like, oh, so you went to this dance school. Okay, how was that? And I was like, it was really great. You know, the people are awesome and everyone, you know, they can just express themselves. And she was just like, oh, okay. And she was like, you know that school is in the city, right? You know you have to go downtown. And from our mother's, like, downtown was just way too far for us. Like, my child is not going downtown. I don't know what's going to happen to them. So she made me go. We went. You know, she checked out the school. She was obsessed with it. She was like, oh, this person went here. This person graduated from here. Okay. So, you know, this is this is a thing. And um, she was just super excited about it. And I was so happy that she was because I really wanted to go. So got into LaGuardia um, High School for that. And that kind of changed. It changed my life um, for the better because I got to be finally around people that were more creative and expressive and things of that nature because in Catholic school, everything is just so restricted. Um, we had, you know, art teachers every once in a while and things of that nature in gym class where you can like be free for like an hour. Um, but it, it was hard for me who knew that I wanted to cut up my jeans and wear like tank tops and, you know, just be free and like really, really express myself visually and we didn't have those moments unless we went on like school trips, but we still had to keep it in dress code. So I think once I got into high school, it just, it blew my mind. I was like, oh, we get to wear regular clothes every day. Whoa, this is like a new thing. I'm like, what do I wear? Because all I knew was my uniform and the probably few t-shirts and jeans and two pairs of sneakers that my mom had got me from like Fordham Road that I didn't necessarily want to wear, but that's all I knew. Um, so it was, it was a great way for me to be free, express myself and learn more about what I wanted to do as an artist and where I wanted to go. Um, because I needed it. I needed it. I needed to, um, get away from what my family, what different family members thought about me or what they wanted me to do. A lot of the men in my family went to the army and the Navy. And I think, I think I was the first one that didn't want to do that. And so I had to, I had to do something different. I knew something had to change. So So that was my teen life. I imagine there were a lot of trans, gay, queer kids at LaGuardia. Yeah. Yeah. What was that like? I mean, I think at that time, I didn't know what trans was. I didn't. I think I only knew gay and lesbian. That was it. And I only learned that because I would watch shows like Queer as Folk when my mother wasn't watching. Um, <laughs> I would watch, what else did I watch? The L Word. And that's all I knew. I I think in in my little box, in my world, within the black community, you, you didn't talk about the LGBTQ plus community. And if you did, if you spoke about being gay or queer, it was a negative energy attached to it. So I would hear, you know, words like fag and things of that nature. And I was like, well, that's not me. <laughs> 
I know I'm not that. I can't be associated with a, a gay or a fag or a queer person because according to my uncles and my cousins and things of that nature, then that's a really bad thing to be. So I think when then going into LaGuardia, I was like, I still had no idea <laughs> what anything outside of gay and lesbian was. But I think going into LaGuardia, I've met more people that were expressive, more people that felt free. And there was this one one friend that I knew, um, Jack, um, and they were so amazing. Like, they were a vocal um, major. And they would come down the hallways wearing dresses and a big afro. And I was like... I want to do that. Like I want to I want to be that free. I want to be that free and I at that time I didn't know I didn't see any other sort of representation that looked like me except on TV. I saw RuPaul, I saw Lenny Kravitz, but they were on TV. I didn't see anyone in person that I could relate to. And when I saw Jack, I was like, "Whoa. Like there's a possibility that I can share the same experience." And I think when I saw that, I was like, wow, this is amazing. I didn't get into, I didn't get into um, the other parts of the LGBTQ plus community until probably about senior year. Um, and I mean, I may, I might have known other, you know, beautiful trans, people of trans experiences at that time, but I just didn't know how to express it or have that conversation with anyone. Um, and I think, especially in that environment at that time, I think a lot of people were still just trying to figure themselves out. You know, high school is tough. So everyone's just like trying to figure it out. No one knows what proper title to use. Um, we didn't, we had, the funny thing is we did have an LGBT um, group. I wasn't a part of it because, you know, they had like four people, which is so crazy for a performing arts school like LaGuardia to only have four people part of that group. But for me at that time, because I was just so stuck on like being the popular kid, um, that group wasn't the most popular thing to be a part of because it just it just didn't feel like something I needed to be a part of at that time. I didn't I really didn't know my voice. All I knew was like. Being trying to be cool and trying to be like dramatic and be petty about like stupid things. I was just so stuck in that world um, and dating and trying to like get boys' attention and stuff like that. Um, and still trying to like pass barely um, and not be late for class. Um, so yeah, it was it wasn't until later on that I found out more and did more experience, more knowledge and work on. LGBTQ plus um, people and things of that nature. And so, like, I think Noah's Ark had came out a little bit later in high school on the Logo Network. And then Logo Network had came out. And I was like, oh, this is where I need to be doing my work. Because since I'm not learning it in school, TV was kind of like the next replacement to that for me. I was stuck on, like, anything that was entertainment. So Logo definitely helped me and broadened out my um, my knowledge on the LGBTQ plus um, community. What was Noah's Ark? And Noah's Ark, so Noah's Ark, for people who don't know, um, Noah's Ark was pretty much, 
I guess the black version of Queer as Folk, honestly, for Logo. Um, and so that was like huge for me because we didn't see any sort of representation of um, queer POC identities on a major network or any sort of television except RuPaul. That's all we know. Um, and to have a show like that, only I think I only ran for like two seasons, but they won't logo. It was an actual network. And for that to be um, probably one of the first um, to be broadcasted by Patrick Ian Polk, who was the writer and um, creator of it, was pretty major. It literally changed um, another show that also changed my life. It, you know, it was the first time that I saw that. And I was like, wow, they look like me. Or they express themselves like me in a way. And they also look like the people I hang out with. So it was just, it was magical. Yeah. You've used um, language of uh, people that express themselves and people that are free. Mm. And you've yeah. said both those things a lot. Yeah. Uh, can you say more about those words and what they mean to you? Um, when it comes to freedom, it's just, I feel like when it comes to freedom, it's more, for me, it's more of a feeling. It's... It's a way to break free from the shackles that society puts on you. Um, and I think as, um, as a Black person, we've been shackled for so long and we still are in different ways. So when you find a space or you find an experience or a moment for you to branch out um, from those shackles that society puts on you, um, whether it be in the workplace, whether it be at home, whether it be in school, whether it be in the government. Um, it's just, it's a moment that you can't even express. It's an emotional feeling that you just be like, okay, I can breathe. I can finally breathe. I don't have to, I don't feel suffocated. And um, a lot of people that I know um, go through that on a daily basis. I think even for me, like, just navigating through New York City is um, sometimes very, um, it could be very daunting, <laughs> um, but I think, I think you have to, you have to learn some sort of confidence um, and strength, especially when you, when you grow up here or when you're here for a long period of time, um, to know that this is your experience, this is your world, um, and you can get through it. You can push through it, you can get through it, and I think um, that's what freedom is to me. Um, what, what was the other one? Expressing. Expressing. Someone's yes. expressing. Right. <laughs> um, I use that word just because I think, for me, I'm a very visual person, so, you know, you know, Madonna's Express Yourself was like a thing for me. Um, and I didn't, I didn't get into that until I was kind of thrown more into the fashion world um, after high school. And I went to FIT and I was like, okay, I could really do this. I didn't know, I was just, you know, I was just working retail and I went to FIT to do design. I'm um, a design student for two years, and I was like, I can really do this. 
And then I said, I don't want to be a designer because it's too much. Like, it was it was too much um, political things that were going on within the fashion industry at that time. Um, for you to, for me to be a successful, you know, at that time, black queer designer, I was like, this is probably not going to happen for me. I have to find out another way to express myself <laughs> and for people to, and for people to see me and hear me. Um, so then I went into styling. I went into more entertainment work and tried to do more things in front of the camera. Um, and so for me, that that's where I became a little bit more expressive um, with the way I looked, the way I carried myself, and the way I could kind of communicate to people through my words. Tell me about working in retail. Working in retail, it was fun. It had its moments. Of course, dealing with customers isn't the funnest thing sometimes, especially when they feel like, you know, they're always right, even though they say that. Sometimes they're wrong. Um, <laughs> so working in retail was a great way for me to, depending on where I was working, um, it was a great way for me to talk to people. Um, and at the same time... So a moment ago, I asked you about telling me about working in retail. Yeah. So working in retail was fun. Um, I had worked in retail for... A long time. I can't even think how long it's been. Um, probably right as soon as I got out of, maybe when I was like 21. Um, no, that's a lie. <laughs> Before then. I think I was like maybe 17, 18 when I had my first retail job. Um, my mother wanted me to work in security. <laughs> so she put me through security training. Um, so that was a fail. Um, but my first retail job was Canal Jeans in, in north of Houston, NoHo. Um, it used to be in Soho, then it moved to NoHo. And I was super ecstatic. I was like, oh, I could work, get paid, and be myself, and be expressive. It was kind of like this vintage, but like they also sold like other brands, um, tight store. And they, um, they were really known for their jeans, um, hence Canal Jeans. And... Um, I was just super excited because I really didn't want to work security. And I was like, this is not what I'm trying to do. Like, this is not how I'm going to be um, this famous entertainer. Like, I can't do it through here. So working retail was a way for me to be in the city more, be able to meet new people, be, be able to be more of myself in a way. Um, but, you know, at times, at times it was tough because you get certain certain stairs and certain ignorant people that come through the door depending on what store you work in and they don't understand the way you look they don't understand how you talk or how you act um so you know it all kind of then falls on management and how you vocalize your issues with them sometimes they cared sometimes they didn't um depending on the company that you work for but i've worked so many different places. I can't even name them all, honestly. Um, but I've worked at Patricia Fields. I've worked, and Patricia Fields is probably the best, but also very, very frustrating to deal with this one manager that didn't like me, so it was personal. He was, he shall remain nameless. Um, <laughs> um, but Patricia Fields had an amazing store in New York for um, 
creatives that were just out there and outlandish and just didn't care at all. They didn't care at all. And it was it was beautiful to kind of be in that environment. A lot of the people that worked there at that time that I was there, um, I'm still in touch with now because they've inspired me to try different looks and try to express myself in different ways. Um, I worked at Diesel. <laughs> um, that was fun. That kind of taught me that I am this glam, edgy person. Um, so I've taken bits and pieces from different experiences in retail and kind of transform them into um, the experience that I am today. Um, so it's been it's been quite a journey. I have my last retail job was last year at Beacon's Closet, um, which is also an amazing place um, full of vintage clothes and other name brand stuff. And it's also a great a pretty great company for you to just be authentically yourself. You meet so many different types of people, um, especially at like I worked at Buffalo Exchange as well. And it was it was just a great environment for me to to meet so many uh, so many great people that loved fashion and love style and love things that were different. And it was okay to be different in those spaces. Um, so you know, my message always is to other people in within the fashion world, or if you're a part of the LGBTQ plus community, I think retail is always kind of like fashion retail is always kind of like the way to go. When you kind of want to be a little bit more flamboyant and you want to be a little bit more comfortable in the world that you're in, um, because a lot of corporate spaces don't want to um, hire people that don't really fit that box um, or don't fit a more reserved look, um, a more corporate look, quote unquote. Um, Things are slowly changing, but still, you know, it's tough. I had a mohawk. I've had dreadlocks those weren't very corporate looks to have um and so i had to figure out oh where can i be comfortable and where can i work and get money um to help support my family help support myself um and be comfortable with that so retail was the way to go so you're an fit studying to be a designer Mm -hmm. and there were politics well, yes, there were politics at FIT only because I it was the first time I got to really understand the fashion world and how it worked. Um, I knew that my chances of being successful in that environment were very slim. There weren't a lot of successful black designers and especially successful black LGBTQ plus open um, designers out there. And I knew, and then also I just didn't like being scheduled and on time zones for different things. I just wanted to be a free designer and do things on my own time and put myself out there. So I just knew for me personally, those were just things that I was just like not ready to do at that time. So I had to figure out other ways and, you know, being a stylist and dressing other people made me happy as well. Um, I loved kind of being able to take bits and, bits and pieces of clothing and put them together and put them on people and have them just be happy about it. Or have them challenge themselves to do different looks and um, try different things out of the norm or what they were used to. 
So um, I appreciated the time I had at FIT because I learned a lot. I think that's what having a college college experience is always about. Um, I just didn't honestly want to put in the work at that time. I just knew that it wasn't for me. I had to figure out a different way to um, be successful and to use the talents that I was born with. So, What came after that? And uh, af- after that, I was just like, okay, well, I want to be... I want to really push forward and be, a, you know, this successful stylist. And then I realized, no, I have more to bring to the world. Um, so I think on a photo shoot, I was styling someone. The artist was late. And they needed someone to get in front of the camera to um, do some test runs. And it was, um, I think it was for an acting gig. And the producer was like, oh, can you just read these lines for me really quick um, and have some, like, personality with it? And it was for, like, a toothpaste or something. And I read the lines out, and he was like, you know you're really good at this, right? And I was like, I mean, I know. I kind of wanted to be a Disney kid growing up, but it just didn't really quite work out for me. And he was like, no, you have to continue doing this because you really have something there. You really have something within you, and I've... I've been, I was told that before that in high school, yeah, it was in high school, my senior year, we had to figure out what colleges we wanted to go to. And someone compared me to like Wendy Williams. And I didn't know who she was at that time until I did my research and I found like she was, you know, a VJ on the radio. And I was like, oh, okay, this could be a thing. But I didn't really take it too seriously. And I thought about, I took some communication classes. But it wasn't a true passion of mine's um, until later on that I knew that I could actually be successful at it and make money from it. And I was like, okay, well, let's try this out. And uh, the artist at that, for going back to the production shoot, the artist didn't sh- end up showing coming. I'm um, showing up, so I went along and got booked for my first campaign with um, this company. So. It was a very eye-opening experience for me to know that I did have the confidence to be in front of the camera and get that done. I think for a long time, you know, I had I had acne, my teeth weren't straight. I just didn't I just didn't want to be in front of the camera or be seen um, because I just didn't feel like I looked the part. I knew that I knew I was cute, but I just didn't I didn't feel confident enough to be in front of a camera and really vocalize and say things that I wanted to say. So, but with, you know, the people that I was around in moments like that, I was like, okay, well, maybe I should do this. Maybe I could, you know, maybe I do now have the confidence to kind of push forward and, you know, be the entertainer I've always wanted to be. So at this cusp of moving from being a stylist to being an entertainer, where mm-hmm. were you at gender-wise? Um, I was still figuring things out. Um, I knew, I knew I was one queer for sure, for sure. (laughs) Um, I just, and I knew I was very feminine. And I think while I was doing entertainment, I was also doing some modeling gigs and someone had told me, you know, you have a very, he was French and he was like, you know, you're very androgynous look. And I was like, androgynous. I was like, what's that? He's like androgynous. You have a very feminine but masculine type look to you. And I was like, oh, okay. Let's try this out then. Let's let's go along. And I Googled it. I got home. I Googled it. And I was like, oh, I think that's what I am. I think I'm androgynous. And 
I remember I told a friend, and it was like, you know, that's not like a sexuality. And I was like, oh, I know, but like, I mean, that's something I can identify as, you know. And I knew I, that's at that point, I was like, well, maybe that's it. Maybe I'm just this queer, androgynous person, and that's the end of that. It wasn't until literally within the past three years, not even three, honestly, two years, that I started to hear this rumble of a title of gender non-conforming and non-binary. And I was like, well, I'm too old to be changing my titles now. I'm like, I don't know what this is. And then, like, people were starting to identify themselves or, you know, they were like, I would like to use, you know, they, them pronouns. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. You know that, right? You know, you're only one person. And this is while at Beacon's Closet, mind you. And it was, <laughs> I was like, you know, that doesn't make any sense. That was so rude and ignorant. Um, but I just didn't, I just didn't get it. Like, it didn't connect to me. It didn't click in my head until someone really sat down and explained to me this is how I feel um, as both a feminine energy and a masculine energy. And I think when they use words like energy and um, expressing themselves from within, I really started to connect to that. It started to make more sense to me. And I was like, I think that's it. I think that's it. And a lot of people for, for a long period of time would use she pronouns for me, but I would so, I would get so offended. I would get, even though I was an androgynous person and, you know, comfortable within myself, but it was the, the she part. It was that like, that pronoun was like, that's not me. Cause at the end of the day, um, I'm still a man, you know? And I think that was because of the journey that I've traveled being, a uh, a black person within a black community that doesn't that doesn't vocalize and talk about different forms of how people can grow and change. Um, we don't talk about sexuality a lot in the black community. We don't talk about um, sexual identity and things of that nature. So I just didn't know. And I think sometimes what people don't know, it's like, you really, you really can't be upset at them in a way. You kind of just have to have patience and teach them things, you know, and be knowledgeable and teach them things that they just didn't know and hope that they can then take that information and do better things with within themselves and for other people. So when I started, I didn't recently start identifying as non-binary and probably the end towards the end of last year maybe um and this was this was because pose i was a featured actor on pose on fx and um i i had played a very gender fluid type you know walker or drag walker or I wouldn't even know how to identify them because I think at that time where Pose was, it was, it's from the late 80s, early 90s. Um, but according to Hollywood, um, they were like, well, we need drag walkers. So I didn't identify as a drag queen, but I was like, I could, you know, could possibly play one. And, um, but I knew there was more to it than just walking in drags. 
I felt like super duper comfortable and I felt so powerful in a more feminine representation of myself. And I think, and not until the show aired, that more people in the gender, um, GNC, gender non-conforming, non-binary, um, and even in the trans community, they would contact me and be like, you are a beautiful woman. And I'm like, huh? I like, I just was like, am I? I was like, I just, I didn't see it until I really started to question myself. What does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be a man? And I think it all depends on the individual and what your definition of those two genders are. And and I start to question myself, is there anything in between those two genders? And that's when, you know, GNC and people were saying GNC and non-binary. And I was looking at those definitions and I was really doing the research to figure out what do these things mean? What do, you know, they, them pronouns mean to certain people, listening to different stories, listening to different experiences. And I think that was a great way for me to then identify um, comfortably as a non-binary person. Um, And also surrounding myself with other amazing and and beautiful uh, people trans experience and GNC um, people, especially on the set of Pose, like, that was the first time I had ever been around so many people of trans experiences and how comfortable they were and how they were still learning about themselves and other people. Um, so it was just it was just a beautiful moment um, to be on set and really realize that like there's more than just this male and female I, um, identification. Um, there's there's things that are in between. There are things that are just more fluid and. Um, some people don't like titles at all. And um, I don't mind that. I think, you know, for me, sometimes it's a very, it's it's a little frustrating, especially still now and um, for certain forms I have to fill out, it's like male or female. And I'm like, I will literally scratch them both out and I'll put non-binary right underneath it and write it out. And I'm like, you, you know, it's just a way of me saying I'm here. I'm seen, I will be seen, and I will be present. And you will you will change this eventually. Um, I think as long as we do and speak on experiences like this and do the work um, physically, mentally, emotionally, vocally, that a change changes will come, changes will be made. And I think we're we're there now where it's slowly we're slowly progressing. Um I think with this administration has been tough, but with every negative, there's, I try to find some sort of positive. Um, I think with this administration that we have now under Trump, um, it's lit a torch out of a lot of people to get more work done. And that's the only probably positive thing I can probably say about Trump being in office is that we're now pushing forward to write our own narratives and do the work so that we will not be erased and we will be remembered. Um, because a lot of people in this administration and a lot of cis white men with power don't care about us. They don't want to understand us. They don't want to hear our experiences. But there's so much more who do. And I think as long as we really continue to push that narrative and get that out there, that we will we will conquer. And we, you know, we've been through a lot and, you know, we will, we will win at the end of the day. So, 
tell me about getting into entertaining. Ah, entertainment. So that's always been a very fun thing to kind of talk about. Um, I think with entertainment, my mother signed me up for Barbizon classes. Um, it was pretty much an agency for models and entertainers and things of that nature. So we would do commercials and um, and modeling and things of that nature. Wait, was this when you were a child? This no. was... this. When- this was a little bit, this was probably, in, this was in between like high school and college for me. But when I was a child, I always forget about the story. Okay, so we're going to bring it back. Um, I did a pudding commercial with Bill Cosby. But, you know, that was, that was at that time, I was a child. So that was my first inkling of being in front of the camera, I think, as a child. I always forget about this story because, you know, I don't remember it. Um, and so that was my first inkling of my mother going, oh, okay, they got something going on here. And they enjoy like being seen and being in front of the camera. And I'm also a tourist, so we can't help it. Um, so I think that was my first inkling. And then, you know, being obsessed with television growing up. And then my mother putting me in these classes a little bit after high school was over. She was like, you should try for Barbara's modeling and into, you know, commercials and stuff. So... I had a director that kind of helped me out with that. And, you know, I was really trying to push forward and do it. It just wasn't working for me at that time. That's when, after that, that's when the, um, the little test shoot, the, the toothpaste commercial happened. And the producer was like, you have to go into entertainment. You have something there. So... Then I just started going on auditions and started going to different castings and got a lot of no's. I knew, and and it was it was very tough for me. And it still is in a way. Um, I think representing and being a very feminine, tall, black <laughs> um, body um, is, is always very triggering because you don't fit that mold. You don't fit that mold of... You know, you have to be at least, you know, five, seven and under to be an actor. Um, modeling is yeah, a hit or miss um, at times because they want, you know, they want the females to be, uh, you know, probably the tallest five, nine, five, ten. They want the male models to look like Abercrombie models. I fit neither of those boxes. So I think I just started to tell myself. You have to show up because if you don't, you will regret it. If they don't see you, how will they know you? You And you never know in, in certain spaces where maybe if you show up, they might change the whole dialogue around because they like what your look is. They like what you're saying. Um, they love, they see your talent. They see your energy. So that might change. So I think going on more auditions and doing different types of commercial work and um, television stuff, kind of helped me um, even get into something like Pose, where I wasn't, I had no idea about it until my friends would tell me on Instagram, like, hey, you should try for this show. It's about, you know, the ballroom community in the late 80s. I think you'll be perfect for it. And it's produced, it's, you know, produced by Ryan Murphy. And I was like, what does Ryan Murphy know about the ballroom scene? You know, the mostly black ballroom scene in New York at that time. And I was like, mm, this seems a little suspect. I don't know. 
So then other people, like, I think about four different people from different areas of the world hit me up about this pose thing. And I was like, okay, this is a sign that I need to get off work. I literally left Beacon's Closet early in my job at the time. And I told my manager, I have to go on this casting call. I have to go in. And I went in and it was just this automatic connection where I walked into the room and I saw the people that were casting for it. And I knew at least three of them. And I was like, okay, I can do this. I can do this. And they were looking for, you know, ballroom walkers and things of that nature. You know, people walking in drag. And I was like, it was the first time that I felt comfortable. I felt seen. I felt heard. Um, Especially in a space where a majority of the cast and background and even people in behind the scenes and behind the cameras were people of trans experiences. Um, So that was just mind-blowing. It's, you know, it's the first show um, to have such a large cast be of trans experience. So it was... It was mind blowing to me, blowing to me that anything is possible. Anything is possible. Yes, you may have tons of doors shut in your face, and even with the writer Stephen Canales, I believe he's from New York. I believe he's from New York. I'm gonna go with that. If I'm wrong, sorry, Stephen. Um, but I believe he's from New York, and he got he actually wrote the beginning of Pose back maybe I think 2005, 2006. He got shut down so many times. So many no's. No one's ever going to watch that. No one's going to want to see this story and things of that nature until, you know, thankfully, Ryan Murphy kind of jumped in and was like, this is actually pretty brilliant. And I feel like with the powers that be and the privilege that I ha- that he has um, as a white man in this world, he's like, I can do this. And I can do this for, you know, the community. I can do this for people who 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 aren't heard, who aren't seen, and have the talent and have the work ethic to do it. And just for him putting that out and for them doing that work. And um, it's just been, it's definitely changed my life for the better. I've gotten so many really great opportunities from it, um, especially walking during New York Fashion Week. Um, and different reality shows that I've done. And it's, it's been, it's been amazing, um, progressive movement that's happening, especially, you know, me now getting into it. And I just know that now I'm working on a short film because I've, you know, been inspired by the people I've been around. And, and, you know, I just, I want people to know that you can do anything. You can do anything as long as you, you know, you put the work in and you're diligent and you have a great, you know, community surrounded by you and a great space and a great family. So, And you have to put up with a lot. And you have to put up, you have to put up with a lot of no's. You have to put a lot of, a lot of rejections and you, you just have to push forward. You have to push forward and not let that determine your future. Not let that stop you from doing the things that you necessarily want to do and want to get done. Um, that's just another reason for you to keep pushing and to keep moving and never stop. Tell me about the balance of making a living doing retail and then also trying to do entertainment gigs and cameras. Oh, yes. Um, (laughs) That was a struggle, Um, especially when 
you want to work the nine to five retail life as much as you can. I, my mother was like, you need to find a job that's full time so we can help pay these bills and things of that nature. And I was like, but mom, I want to be an artist. I have to like get out there and get the work done. And she was like, well, being an artist doesn't pay as much as you want it to. And you're not getting as many gigs as you, you're trying to get. Um, and I was like, oh my goodness. So I think it's, it was very, very tough. Um, you have to figure out scheduling and being very precise about, you know, getting that work done, scheduling it to where, you know, if you have to be at work from nine to five, literally, but there's an audition at three, how can you communicate that to your management? How can you communicate that with your other coworkers? Like, hey, can you just cover me for two hours? Or, you know, if you have an hour lunch break, which is, you know, very rare at times, but I think things are changing in the retail world. If you have an hour lunch break and you know that you have to make this casting, then do it. Even if you bring a snack, figure it out. You know, you might miss a meal, but you know that you have to kind of make sacrifices. I think that's really, really, really important when it comes to figuring out how to balance a nine to five job. And also going on castings and trying to do gigs and films and things of that nature. And there are times where some gigs don't pay. And you might have to just say no to it. Because at the end of the day, you have to feed yourself. You have to pay bills. And and maybe the opportunity just wasn't for you. Maybe that, that moment just wasn't for you. And just to know, just know that there are other opportunities out there. Um, it's okay to say no. You don't have to take every opportunity that comes your way. Especially when you, you feel it in your gut. I think back then, I said yes to a lot of things. And I jeopardized my work. I jeopardized losing jobs, losing actual nine to five retail jobs because I would call out so many times to take gigs that wasn't paid for, but I was on screen, I was being seen. And I think if I had to, I don't regret anything, but if I could go back and change some things, I would ask the casting directors, hey, is there another time I can come in? Can I come in around this time? Can I kind of, you know, maneuver things around to where everything flows and works properly? Um, You don't have to say yes to everything that comes your way. And I think I've learned that for sure. Especially when there's no money attached. It's in it's no shade. It's like <laughs> bills have to be paid. And how are you gonna get from point A to point B if you don't have any money in your account? Like you have to be you have to be really smart about it. Um, if it's a huge opportunity that you can't let go, then you just gonna have to figure out how can you communicate that with your management um in a way where it's you know smart, it's um responsible. And just make it work. Make it work. You know, there, there were times I had to call out. I'm like, I can't. I can't make it. I mean, of course, check with your coworkers. Make sure <laughs> make maybe they're available to cover your shift and things of that nature. But if there's no other way you can get to work or have someone cover you, then you might have to take that risk and maybe possibly call out to go to that huge audition. If it's something that you're really passionate about and you know that, it's, that it might just change your life, then you might have to take that risk. But... I advise you to try every other way. <laughs> that is more of a responsible way to do it. I was very carefree and I was like, you know what? I'm going to call it again this week from work because I need to go on this casting. Not the way to do it.
Figure out other ways to do it, please. And for people like that that you know who aren't stars, mm-hmm. how common is it that someone's able to pay the bills from doing entertainment work? Like, like how realistic does that is mm-hmm. that for people when they're starting off or you know like mid? It's it's hard. It's really, really hard. I think, especially when you don't have that stability or that support from your family or your friends. I'm lucky enough to have my mother pays for the upstairs and downstairs for the condo building that we live in. So I'm lucky enough to be in that building and not have to pay like some crazy amount for a room or have like 18 roommates. Um, but a lot of people that I've heard, a lot of friends that I have, they have that experience and they're just like, I don't know how to make it. And I don't know when my la- my next meal is going to happen. So hearing from their experiences, um, and even my own, sometimes there have been times where I'm just like, cause I left my last, my nine to five job last year. So I've just been working on nonstop entertainment work and things of that nature. So I think what's really big is budgeting. Um, meal prep is very important Um, and just being really smart about it and trying to figure out how can I just possibly make this work I think background work is you know great um, especially when you're first starting um, and getting try to get in touch with a lot of different casting um, agencies because I mean they, they pay they pay not as much if you had a principal role or whatever the case may be but they do pay I know a lot of people that are a part of the SAG community and they do all they do is background work and they're taking trips to the Bahamas <laughs> and all these other places. So they pay, you just have to be consistent with it and you have to enjoy what you do. I think if you don't first enjoy it, um, that's when things are going to be really, really tough for you. You have to be really passionate and you have to be really excited about the work that you're going to do. Being background is not easy. Um, it's very, very tough, especially for a lot of people that are non-union. Um, you are kind of, mm, you're treated in a way that isn't like a lead. You're pretty much the bottom of the barrel in a way. And it's very, very tough for non-union people to kind of just make it work. Um, you feel at times that you're not seen, you're not heard, um, but I think as long as you you try to keep a positive um, mindset when you go um, through life, you should be good. You should be you should be okay, and kind of sur- also surround yourself with people who are probably going through the same experiences you're going through, and help each other out in a way, especially on set. I when I was on set for Pose, I was non-union and I was completely over it. I didn't know anything about like SAG and you know. People who are part of SAG go first in line and they get their own buses and we got to walk and things of that nature. I was like, what is this treatment? What is happening here? But it's a part of the journey. It's a part of, you know, Hollywood and the film industry. It's, you know, it's not the easiest thing. But SAG people, they pay their dues. You know, they have to, you know, you can't be in SAG and they ain't free unless, the, you know, a big production is paying for you. But, you know, they have their dues and you kind of just have to be humble enough to go along with the journey. But still be be knowledgeable of your surroundings and know how can you push forward to get where you want to get because now I'm SAG eligible so I'm almost there a part of the SAG community but I 
don't have those. I don't have the sad coins or money right now to pay these bills. So, you know, I think, you know, I'm 30 and I'm still trying to figure things out, you know, just because, you know, you see me on a hit show or things of that nature doesn't mean everything's quite together, you know, because at the end of the day, once those cameras are off, you still have to deal with real reality and real things. And I think people need to hear more of that and start to see more of those stories. What's what's going on behind the camera, behind the scenes. So just don't think that everything's okie doke. Don't believe everything you see on social media. Just know that people are still going through things. and People, people are still going through struggles. Um, so you just have to keep pushing forward. I imagine there's a tension between people needing to... Um keep their spirits up and keep hope up and having confidence Mm -hmm. and then social media is like uh needing to present that out to the world and then for people just on the outside or just getting into it that that's the image they get Mm -hmm. and the hardships of it might be a lot harder to be frank about yeah talk about yeah it's 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 a really the entertainment world is a very tough industry so you can't believe everything you see or hear. You kind of just have to go with your gut and go with your own knowledge and experience and how to maneuver through it um, and get through it mentally and emotionally. It's a very draining situation to be a part of. I think just being, just living life is hard. So for being a part of the entertainment world, we have to constantly... You know, be around so many different personalities and so many different people and um, kind of also take course of a role that you're trying to play or, you know, a totally different identity. It's a very draining experience. But, I mean, if you're happy doing what you're doing, then, you know, you'll stick through it. You'll figure it out. You will figure it out. A lot of people have. And um, a lot of people have, you know, told me I don't want to do this anymore. And they've gone a different path. And that's okay. There's so many other ways you can be a creative um, and have your voice heard. You can probably start your own production company, which is probably another, you know, dilemma uh, to go through. But you can, if you don't feel like, if you don't feel comfortable in the space that you're in, create a space that you do feel comfortable in. You know, we have to start creating more spaces for ourselves and for other people who probably don't want to be in... um, a more of a huger production or volume of things. You have to, you know, really just do the work. It's going to be really, really tough and it's probably going to be a journey. But let's say, like, for example, if Stephen Canales didn't continue doing the work, then we wouldn't have Pose on FX. We wouldn't have the biggest, you know, or hugest hit show for a cast predominantly people of trans experience. He wouldn't have had that if it wasn't for him saying, you know what, I'm not going to stop doing what I'm doing. I'm going to push forward and I'm going to get this done. So, Do you have parts in your life where you are able to express yourself or keep going that don't rely on getting hired? Um, yes. I think just my daily life <laughs> of walking around the city and being... Um, according to Instagram or social media, a public figure in a way. Um, It's a great way for me to 
be around people who necessarily maybe don't get to be around people that look like me or experience people like me. And that's why I always love, I mean, I'm also don't have a driver and I don't drive. Um, so I don't mind taking the train. I don't mind having that interaction with people who don't necessarily, especially in the Bronx, who don't necessarily see people like me all the time. Um, because it's, you know, it's certain places in New York and certain places in the Bronx it's not the greatest place to be expressive um, visually, um, especially when you don't fit into the norms of what society wants you to fit into. So um, I think me leaving my house every day and being the person that I am, um, I have heard that it has changed people's lives um, for the better. It has taught them or gave them some sort of hope some sort of inspiration to be authentically themselves or even I've had parents come up to me like, I have a child just like you and I don't know what to do with them. And they would sit down with me in the middle of nowhere and we would talk. Um, And it's, you know, it's very interesting, especially in places like New York where people to come up to you randomly and have like a sit down conversation with a stranger. But I'm willing to do it only because one, I'm a people person, not everyone can do it. Um, I'm a people person. And then two, I don't mind sharing my experience or my knowledge on things if it's going to help someone else, you know, because you don't know what that person's going through, especially as a parent that has, um, a child that is, I wouldn't, I was going to say different, but we're not really different. If you really think about it, we're just humans living our lives. Um, I think, a child that identifies as something that's outside of the norm. And some parents just don't know what to do. They haven't had the research. They haven't had the experience to deal with that situation. So if they could lean on someone else or they could hear it from someone else, it could possibly change their life and their child's life from making a huge you know, mistake as when it comes to like suicide or, you know, a lot of children are still going through like a lot of mental issues um, with trying to find their identities. So, and I think it's, you know, it's a big burden for the parents to kind of carry to figure, you know, help them figure it out because they don't know how to communicate with their child. And I think that's one of the the things that I'm thinking about now as I'm, as I'm growing up. It's like, how can, how can I now change the narrative of how I grew up? with my future children. I, you know, I will, I will cannot wait to sit down with my kids and talk about everything. How was school today? What did you learn? You know, um, how do you express yourself today? Or, you know what I'm saying? You know, like, how do you, how do you express yourself visually? What do you want to wear today? You know, things of that nature instead of, you know, my, you know, my mother did a great job. She did as much as she could. Um, but, you know, even, you know, being born under my father's name, um, my government name is Bernard. Um, but I, in high school, I changed my name, not, you know, on paper physically, not yet at least. Um, someone gave me the name Beehawk. She was like, you don't look like a Bernard. You don't, you know, whatever Bernard looks like, but was just kind of like my dad. Um, but she's like, you don't look like a Bernard. You look like you know, this 
whole different experience. Something that's just super dramatic. You have a mohawk. We got to figure this out. And she said, be hard. And I was like, okay, that's that's not a professional name, but we can figure it out. She was like, well, you're an artist, so I think it'll work. And when she said that, I was like, I can see that. And it kind of just flowed like Beehawk Snipes. It kind of just made sense. And, you know, little things like that, little experiences like that kind of just make such a change. So I've been going by Beehawk since high school. So, and that's a lot of people know me as. I just, I think even though I haven't physically changed it on paper, my name, Beehawk makes sense to me. Um, Bernard is someone... It's it's some it's a part of who I am. It's a part of my journey, um, and at, at times I do feel like a Bernard, or I'm just sitting home minding my business in my basketball shorts. Um, but I think for the for the most part, um, Beehawk is just some a name that really you don't know what's gonna come through the door when you see it, when you hear it, when you see a Beehawk on a piece of paper or in an email. It's like what does Beehawk look like? You want to know more. And I think that's really, really exciting um, to have a, a name like that, a unique name. And I would love to have that conversation with my children um, on how to identify and what it means to them. Are they comfortable with the name I gave them? You know, do they feel like the name I gave them represents them? Um, and just have all those conversations with them. It's going to be, I think the world that we're going into um, for the future, I'm hoping at least will be really big on communication and fluidity and expressing themselves and people just living. Um, I think, I'm, I'm thinking a lot of labels will go out the door. I think um, people who want to represent themselves as lesbian, as gay, as queer, as trans, as GNC or non-binary, it was, it's going to be great, but there's going to be a total shift that's going to happen where people are probably, I know a lot of hetero, heterosexual people, um, cis heterosexual people who are like, I kind of represent as they, them too, in a way. Um, I take full, you know, full power in my, you know, my, the energies that are living within me, both male and female. So it's interesting to kind of see certain people shifting on the other side as well and questioning things and really pushing against the norm of what um, society wants to label as just two genders. So I'm excited about it. Tell me about wanting to have kids. <laughs> um, I don't know if there's something ticking within me, um, but I've always wanted to have children. I think I would literally dress up like I was pregnant when I was little. And my mother used to be so freaked out. She'd be like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm pregnant. And, I'm, and my mother should be like, what? What is going on? Because, you know, I, I at that time when I was younger, you know, I played with dolls and I expressed my, I played with like G.I. Joes and X-Men figurines with dolls at the same time. And my mother used to be like, okay, you know, let him do his thing or let them do their thing. Um, my uncles and the more masculine um, cis people in my family, they weren't really into it. But my mother was a very protective woman. She was like, no, this is my child. And they would do it as they please. Um, so I think now that I've grown up, it's been, it's been pretty fun. Kind of, wait, what was the question? I totally. About having kids? Having kids. Okay, yeah. So that, I was like, oh my goodness, I'm talking about me as a child. Um, 
having kids, um, yeah, I just always thought about like, wow, like one day I'm going to be a parent and I'm going to have my two kids. I'm going to have my, possibly have a dog. I kind of want three kids, but I feel like that might be too much for me. So we're going to go with two kids and a dog and see how that goes. Um, but I think it's, it started ticking probably a few years ago when I saw like a lot of people that I grew up in high school, you know, at 25, 26, everyone's having kids. And I'm just over here still trying to figure out what, you know, what gig I'm going to get next. I'm like, how is this going to work? Like, when am I going to have kids myself? Um, and how, oh, this recent question in my head, what would they call me? Now that I identify, I haven't really done my research on it, but I was like, now that I identify as uh, a non-binary person, do they call me mommy? Do they call me daddy? Or do I give them like a special name for them to call me? Um, yeah, I haven't done my research on it, but I'm going to figure it out. Um, my close, um, Sir Knight, one of my close friends, he was like, just, they can call you B. <laughs> they can call you B for sure. I mean, that's fine. A lot of people do it. And I'm like, Okay, I've just been so, I think I've just been so programmed growing up to mommy, daddy. There's been nothing in between. You know, there's been little nicknames, of course, that you call your parents. You know, mama, dada, papa, whatever. Um, But I was like, okay, so what do gender non-conforming non-binary parents, what do their children call them? And um, how do they kind of go through that journey with them. So I haven't done my research on that just yet. But once I figure it out and hear different ex- different stories and experiences from them, I, maybe I'll have an easier time maneuvering through that when I get to that point. But um, I can't wait. I can't wait to have kids. I can't wait to carry on this powerful legacy that I will leave them with. And um I really feel like my kids are going to be like Willow Smith and Jaden or something like that. I really feel like they'll be very similar to like, you know, Will Smith and Jaden Smith's family dynamic. It's like very free, very black, <laughs> and just open to having sit downs and communication with each other about everything. Like, let's talk about as much as you want to talk about. You mentioned uh, dating men in high school uh, yeah. towards the end, but you haven't mentioned romance at all uh, around since then. Right. Uh, tell, <laughs> tell us about what your romantic life is like. Um, My romantic life, I think from high school leading up to probably now, I usually date mostly... Um, men that are more on the masculine side uh, have very high feminine power so I feel like I need to balance that out sometimes um but it wasn't until I started being more on social media and having conversations with men of trans experiences that I was like my mind was my mind was kind of blown a little bit and I was like oh this should be interesting I don't know how this could work out but I'm, I'm into it. And also just a lot of um, even lesbians that were a little bit more on the more masculine spectrum. I was, you know, I was very intrigued by them as, as well. I was like, oh, they're hot. They're, you know, they're very attractive. But I'm just like, but is that what I'm attracted to? Am I attracted to their masculine energy or is it a physical thing? So a lot of things started to go through my brain within the past few years. Um, and it, in, 
I think I started to really get into who I was um, love-wise when I started to then date men of trans experiences and how that I think love shouldn't be... It should be more than just a physical thing. It should be it should be a little bit more of I mean at first you know you see someone physically you're attracted to them but it should also be a more deeper and emotional connection with someone and I think once you realize that you're kind of just open your whole world up to all the possibilities that the world can bring your way. Um, I think now recently watching the documentary on Miss Major blew my mind. I was like, whoa. They did it a little bit of everything in the spectrum. Like she or they were just so leading with love. And I think as long as you do that, then, you know, the world is your horizon, honey. You can do whatever you want um, and have connections and experiences with people that you never would have um, thought about. Um, I think a lot of us are very brainwashed growing up to. This is how to think. This is the way things are supposed to happen. These are the things that you're supposed to do when you grow up and become an adult. You have to marry this way. You have to live your life this way. And you really don't. You honestly really, really don't. And I think now I'm in this, this arena where I think love is not number one. I think loving myself or loving someone else is not number one for me. I think loving myself um, is number one. And then, you know, possibilities are endless, honestly. Once you love yourself, it's like, then you can love anyone else that comes along in the journey. But dating is tough, especially in New York, figuring things out. I'm 6'3". I'm not the shortest person on the spectrum. So that's also very, very fun. A lot of people kind of see my height as overwhelming, for them and they also just feel very nervous and they don't know what to do with themselves. Like I'm just like a walking dinosaur and I'm just like, I'm a human being. Six three is actually not that tall, but I know it's above average for America. Um, but I'm actually doing a panel, I'm actually doing a panel about love um, for gender non-conforming and non-binary people for the fluid project coming up. So I've, cause I know a lot of people, they, they go through the same issues that I've gone through where people hit, you know, they contact you or they try to flirt with you, but it's in all the wrong ways. It's like, oh, you know, can you come on it? Like they'll ask for a request. Like, can you come on the date looking more feminine? And I'm like, first of all, you can't tell me how to identify as a non-binary person. Like, you can't pick and choose which side of the spectrum you want me to um, show up as. Um, So that's also been very interesting. Like, even when it comes to, like, sex or whatever, it's like, oh, I have these lists of requests. I want you to wear fishnets. I want you to be in heels. I don't want to be in heels when I'm having sex. No, I want to be comfortable as possible. Some people are into that stuff. For me... No, and that's also not something that you should bring up in a conversation. Like, you shouldn't put in a request for someone. You should kind of have them naturally want to do that, unless you're in a relationship with that person, and that's something that you guys kind of want to have a conversation about. But when you first meet me, please do not put in a request sheet, because it will be terminated. Thank you, because I can't.
I can't. But it's going to be a very interesting panel, and I can't wait for it to happen because there's about five different people um, that identify as gender fluid, gender nonconforming, and non-binary um, from all different kind of walks of life and nationalities. So you guys, you're going to get to see how they kind of migrate through life, um, single, dating, open relationships, love, um, all that fun stuff. So I'm really excited about that coming up. Uh, what are your communities in New York like? Like, who do you spend a lot of time with? What sort of social networks do you are you do you feel? Do you get the most support from, or do you feel connected mm. with? You've mentioned a few different communities, but like, how? Where do you find your people in the city? Mm. Um, like like I said before, I grew up kind of. I grew up mostly in a Hispanic neighborhood. Um, but my group of friends were all different kind of nationalities in a way. Um, I had a really close um, friend who was Filipino. I had, you know, a Spanish friend. I had an Asian friend. I had um, all different types of friends. And I think growing up and then going to, you know, LaGuardia, there was all different types of people there. So I've always been really open to having and surrounding myself with different nationalities, people with different backgrounds, different experiences. And that way, so I can learn more um, about who I am and about others. So um, at this moment, I've been doing a lot more work with identifying with my Black experience. I think for a long time, being Black and queer was total opposites. It's like, you can't be both. You had to figure one out. And then it was just like, well, that's a part of who I am. How can I do that? So I didn't hang out. <clears throat> I didn't hang out with a lot of um, black people because I always just felt like they wouldn't understand me. They would judge me, things of that nature. And it wasn't until I went to, um, I think, an Afropunk festival one year. And I was like, oh, these are my people. Oh my goodness, like, these are, like, creative Black people who are expressing themselves with no care in the world. Like, they're really, they're wearing, you know, feathers, we're wearing dashikis, we're, you know, we're wearing face paint, we're acknowledging our love for punk music and alternative music, and it was just a really great place to just be yourself as a person of color and it was just it was mind-blowing to kind of see so i think from that point on i was like okay i could do this um and a lot of even black people now they're just like well why did it take you so long to kind of really own your experience and i think i think every even though we all might have be under the same black experience umbrella because at the end of the day we're black but i think everyone has their own black experience and journey um for me this was my journey and i think it took me quite some time to figure that out and figure out my community and how can i how can i learn from other black people that have gone through similar things how can i learn from um black networks that want to empower my blackness and want to um, spread knowledge on things that I didn't know about within my own community and my within my own black community within my own queer community. So it's been it's been pretty amazing to kind of work with Sir Knight and Love More from Black Trans TV. They've 
especially Sarah Knight. Sarah Knight has taught me so many things. Um, every day, it's a new experience. Like, especially with us being best friends, I teach him all these things, all these different things about entertainment that he knows nothing about. And then he teaches me all these different <laughs> amazing things about blackness and what it means um, to own your experience and what it means to be um, a powerful um, black queen or black king and things of that nature. So I I didn't really own it or grasp it until a little bit later. And um, and also just branching out and, and working with different networks um, that are in the Chelsea area for LGBTQ plus youth and um, really just getting myself there and more as an activist and less as, you know, just someone on Instagram talking about things. It's like we have to, we have to inform people that people are being murdered. Black trans lives are being murdered. No one's talking about it and why. Let's have those conversations and, you know, teaming up with even um, an activist such as Erica Hart and all the work she's doing for the queer community and how she speaks so passionately about those things that really, really should matter and those things that should be on the news and talked about and they aren't. We have to then do that work. We have to carry that um, kind of that baggage, I think, as millennials in a way to push forward for the next generation, to live openly and speak um, on the things that really matter and do the work and know the knowledge that came before them. Um, because I I was so embarrassed that I just learned about Miss Major. But I think Sir was like, a lot of people didn't. A lot of people just didn't know. And if you don't have these these things, these things written down that we've done as a community and these things recorded and these things documented, then we will never know. And I think a lot of a lot of um, people want to erase that, but you can't. You can't when they're solid in the fundamental ways um, that America kind of has for people of color. It's like you can't erase these things that have happened in our journey because they're there and they're documented. Some aren't, but a majority of them are. And they're they're hidden somewhere under some rug or vault that people can't get to. And I think it's really, really important for projects like this um, for the New York Library to do because and because if, if they didn't have resources like this, especially now, then who knows what the future would be? You know, who 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 will know my story if I don't record it, if I don't write it down, if I don't really get it out there for the world to see, who will then know my story? Who will know the work that I've done to for people to live freely and for people to express themselves in the way that they see fit? Well said. Thanks. <laughs> Was there anything that you didn't talk about that you wanted to make sure to include? Um, I think I've covered pretty much everything. Um, I think I have. It's been such a journey. Like, learning new things every day and um, putting forward the work that needs to happen. Um I think being open-minded, being open-minded to learn as much as you can. Um, I'm a little bit of a stubborn person, 
So um, I've learned to step outside of my comfort zone and try different things and and listen to a lot of different experiences um, because it can only it can only help you to be become a more powerful person, um, especially within the LGBTQ plus community. I think if you just stay stagnant in just one circle, then you're not going you're not going to get as far, and you're not going to be become as uh, as powerful as a person. If you kind of just stay in this little um, box, I think someone asked on a panel that I was a part of for Pride last year. Um, it was a white cis heterosexual man in the audience, and I was like, "Hey," he was like, um, "How can how can I do the work?" And I said, "That is a very good question. How can you do the work?" And I told that I told him, I said, "The way you can do the work for me, from 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 my knowledge, is to." Not necessarily go into... I mean, you have to be very tricky with different um, environments that you go into. But I think as long as you branch out of your comfort zone, branch out of this norm that you have for yourself and that the world has for you, and listen to different stories, read different books, um, talk to different types of people that you necessarily wouldn't talk to, um, then you then you'll 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 know how to then do the work in those in those places, um, and then things could go a little bit easier for you. I feel like if you really just branch out and get to know different types of people and stop kind of just constricting yourself to people that you only know in your area and your community, you have to branch out and um, just to get to, get to learn different types of people. It's really really important because if I didn't know. <laughs> that I wouldn't be where I am today. So that is all. That is all I have. Thank for you, the world. Thank you. Thank that you. That was lovely. Thank you so much.